dig right in. We're taking a break from stewardship today. And we're going to talk about something that will hopefully encourage and nurture us in the faith. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at a conference, and I talked about this subject, but from a different text with kind of different implications of it. But some things are kind of the same, but very, very different. Um, I talked about the fact that I had, um, when I was, my last Greek class in seminary, we had to translate the book of Romans twice, um, which was a grueling task, might I add. And we had, part of the paper was supposed to be in English, and part of the paper was supposed to be in Greek. Now, as deep as that sounds, and as great as that sounds, and as fly as that sounds, that was the easy part. Translating and all of that, that was the easy part. It was the assignment that we had to do a paper called a sanctification paper. And we had to take a subject of the book of Romans and do a dichronic study of that subject from, from Matthew to Revelation. And we had to write, I don't even remember the length, it was some ungodly length, but um, and our footnotes, like we'll have footnotes up to here and then one line on the page, so it was just one ungodly, just ungodly paper. It was just an ungodly paper. And so, and so I got a chance to write, and, and everybody was writing on progressive sanctification, positional sanctification, glorification in the book. And, 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 and I began thinking through suffering. I, I, you know, I said, I, I said, you know, I asked the prophet, anyone had written, and he said, no one has ever written a sanctification paper on the role of suffering in sanctification. And so, you know, I'm the geeky theological student, and I am, so I can't wait to get into this. So I start going through the entire New Testament and blocking off every passage where there was the word affliction, persecution, stumbling blocks, challenges, resistance of the death. I just blocked all of those off, and I put them in all of these different categories of similarity. Then I wrote the paper. And as I began to write the paper, this was great theory for me. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to write one of the most Bowman papers that's been written. Ain't nobody written on this, even in the whole sanctification class. So I'm very concerned about the theological content, which was dope. Very intellectual paper. As a matter of fact, I got an A on the paper. But that was the paper. <laughs> it's easy for me to go to the Bible, study stuff, Write it down accurately. But there's another thing when what you study and what you rightly divide has to penetrate you. Intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. And so, as I know, every time I always hate to study suffering. I hate it. I'm going to tell you why. Because God in his sovereignty, see, he'll have you go through something right after you've done that great study. He said, and, and the Lord showed me that the sanctification paper was the class. But the assignment for the class really didn't happen yet. He says, now you're going to have to do homework. And so here I go through multiplicities of suffering, my wife and I. 
And we went through emotional ups and downs. And one of the things that was the greatest challenge for us was the character of God. At the end of the day, that was the central thing that we struggled with. It really wasn't the situation in and of itself that we were struggling with. It was really with, is God good? We believe in Reformed theology and the five points of Calvinism and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. But then when hell breaks loose, where is his sovereignty then? It's one thing to pontificate the motif of the pericope. That's my Baptist coming out. But there's another thing. When God assigns a storm to you. And I'll be doggone, he's going to assign many of them. And when he assigns them, there are divine decrees and expectations of every covenant community member of the body of Christ. And the question is, is not how you view God when it's sun shining outside and how you talk to other people about it and switch information. But the question now is, is when you're in the eye of the storm, hurricane, tsunami, flood, thunder, lightning, and snowstorm, can you see through the thicket of the blizzard the character of God rightly? And this is where real Christianity penetrates. And I'd say real Christians reveal themselves. So we're going to go to a passage that I've, was one of my first memorization passages when I used to use the New American Standard Version most of the time. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're just going to go through eight verses. And we're just going to walk this thing real slow and ask God to give us grace. That we may be who he wants us to be. I, oh God, I pray again. As we read this, that you would penetrate us by the Holy Ghost in this place, by your mighty hand, in the mighty name. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would rock us with the nutrition of the kingdom that would be applicable and, and that we would be scholarly practitioners of your word. James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. <laughs> what an introduction. And he dives right in. All right, that out the way. Count it all joy, my brother. When you meet or encounter various trials for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing if anyone lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. (laughs) For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'd like to, old school here, I'd like to tag this text. Walking with Jesus when life gets unclear. James is talking to Christians who have been dispersed, Christian Jews that is, who have been dispersed. And he's talking to them in light of the afflictions that they've experienced and are experiencing in their life. And one of the things that Christians did back then, especially the elders, bishops, pastors, apostles, prophets, and teachers during this period, is they got worried about Christians when they were new Christians and they were persecuted because of the name of Christ. They worried. They worried about them because they didn't want them to have a substandard view of Christianity. In other words, some stuff didn't start happening as bad until they became Christians. See, some people were better off circumstantially, not eternally, but circumstantially, before they became Christians. Life seemed a lot better, a lot easier, a lot stressful, a, lot less, a little less stressful. We had a lot of means of demonic grace to run. We had, we had drunkardness. We had hormone. We had things that played a role in us being able to run from circumstance. But James gives the dispersed Christians some biblical theology that's practitionable, or practicable rather, where he gives them the ability right here to begin to walk through what are the ways in which God calls us to drink from him and smoke from him and lay with him. Well, what does he have available to the Christian who can seek in Jesus alone through what Jesus provides and what he gives and how he deals with us and how he directs us in the faith by not going to illegitimate means during difficulty? Because many times when heck, hell, or whatever breaks loose on our lives, what begins to happen is we go uh, to fulfill illegitimate desires and with illegitimate means. And so here, Big JJ is up in here, and he's chopadopolis in it for us right now in a way that's so smoking. And I'm loving the way he pontificates on the beauty of the Christian faith in everything. If you are a Christian and you know Jesus as Savior, you got so much hope. You got so much hope. You have so much grace that has been flagrantly thrown at you, that gets unused all the time. That's why these are means of grace. And so he's going to talk to them about the issue of sanctification. Sanctification, for those who don't know, is the process by which God makes us actually holy. Positionally, we are holy because of Jesus. He imputed us with his righteousness, Romans chapter 5. 
and makes us holy, spotless, like God positionally. God looks at us, he sees Jesus. However, in everyday life, we are deeply unholy. Therefore, God has to rig mechanisms to make sure that we don't just use heaven as a ticket. Because his desire more than anything is that we look like Jesus. And he will do everything he can to stalk us for that to happen. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So, first point. God's people can thrive in suffering. (laughs) Count it all joy. Stop there. We're going to spend some time explaining this. Count it all joy. He tells them while they're in the trial. He, it's interesting that he doesn't talk about different blessings of escape. He said, while you're in it, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Now, what does this mean? This, this has a, a myriad of facets to it that I think is gonna, God is going to grace us to get some understanding. Count here means as making a decision after weighing the facts, circumstances, to consider, to think, to have an opinion, regard, esteem something. So he's saying when you go through the difficulty, don't ignore it. Don't bury your head in the sand and act like it's not happening. Look at it. <laughs> he said don't live in denial. Don't deny that you're going through and say everything's okay and you don't feel like it's not. It's, it may not be. So he says count. Look at it. C- consider it. Uh, view, look at where you really are and the circumstance you're really in without worshiping the circumstance. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he, he gives the disposition of how you count. He doesn't just say look at it. He says look at it with this in mind, joy. He says look at your circumstance in joy. Now this is powerful because cause I got some Holy Ghost, you know what I'm saying, so when I first got disciples, see, this is where my hollering and shabakin comes out right here. Because, see, right here is where I remember, oh, God, help me. Right here, joy is so beautiful. Because joy means to be satisfied with God no matter what circumstance you're in. <laughs> Satisfaction, Paul, I mean, uh, James is telling him, telling the people of God to count it satisfactory. In other words, have satisfaction towards God while you're in the circumstances. Your circumstances should not be able to help you to miscalculate that God is satisfying you even while you're going through. In other words, God shakes up our life so that we not get satisfied with what he's created. But he wants us to be satisfied with him. And he'll do it with, he will assign stuff. Remember in the Jonah series where God as a pitcher threw a storm. He will throw a storm at you. You can rebuke the devil all you want. It's him sometimes. That's why it's staying. It's not working. You can't use the name of Jesus on Jesus. (laughs) 
Because when it, there is an assignment on your life. See, everybody talk about the divine assignment. I have an assignment. That's dope. I like divine. But here it says that suffering is a divine assignment for every Christian. Uh, uh, and that's your divine purpose. To go through during different stages of your life and God will give you breathing breaks sometimes. I got to, hold on. Good God, I got to think about that. Wow. So joy as a feeling of inner happiness, rejoicing, gladness, delight. A state or condition of happiness or blessedness. We're going to talk about the two types of joy right here because there are two types of joy, but there's one in particular that's being talked about. But I think sometimes we've cheapened joy by making it only one of these or the other one, but not really seeing both sides of joy because there are two sides of joy in the scriptures. One, um, one, one, I like this one lexicon. This guy just, he killed me with this. I was just wrecked. I had to sit there for a minute. He says, joy is happiness over an unanticipated or present good. Happiness over an unanticipated. In other words, there's stuff that's not happening currently. And you are deciding to be satisfied with God even though he hasn't moved yet. See, many of us are only satisfied with God providing something. We're not satisfied with the provider himself. Because the greatest provision that we could ever have is him. So he says, if spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, constitutes God's most characteristic presence in the world, then joy is to, be a, uh, is, is to a large extent the result of God's presence among humans. The spirit generates joy along with righteousness and peace as its fruit, singular. Galatians 5.22, Romans 16, I mean, Romans 14.17. It enables, that is joy, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit as it, but joy enables a person to endure joyfully the suffering and trials of Christian existence. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Being filled with joy and the spirit is itself a sign of the legitimacy of the mission of God's people. Hence, joy in the world is viewed as a witness to the activity of God himself. Being missional is sharing the gospel, but it's also being known that you're going through difficulty and you're remaining faithful to the gospel, yet while you're still in the difficulty, you're not waiting for difficulty to be taken off of you so that you can start doing the Christian life again, but you see difficulty as a part of the Christian life. Therefore, your activity with God and his means of grace never ends. Joy. Joy. Positive human condition that can either be a feeling or an action. Those are the two things. It can, be, it can be a feeling and it can be an action. Stay with me. This is powerful. So let's talk about joy as a feeling. Joy is a feeling called forth by well-being, success, or good fortune. <coughs> a person automatically experiences it because of certain favorable circumstances. Now, the Bible does say that joy can come through the result of circumstances. Of course, the Christian joy isn't really coming. It's already in us. It's just not ignited because we don't use it. Now, we'll explain that. 
Now, these are some areas in the Bible where you see joy as a feeling. The shepherd experienced joy when he found the, his lost sheep, Matthew 18, 13. The multitude felt it when Jesus healed a Jewish woman whom Satan had bound for 18 years, Luke 13, 17. The disciples had joy or they were rejoicing upon the ascension of Jesus Christ, Luke 24, 52. Joy was also the feeling of the church at Antioch when its members uh, uh, when the members heard the Jerusalem Council's decision that they did not have to be circumcised and keep the law. I think when they got the letter, the elders told the people to get on the drums and the, and the organ. And the men were like, dun, 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 Listen, y'all ain't know I went back like that, did you? You ain't even know that, did you? They were holding pews and all the men were just shouting. They were like, thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you, God, that we're Gentile. Bless your name, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, Negroes was losing their minds because they were blessing God for the cross and it being applied to them not being circumcised there. Now, fellas, that, that does bring you a feeling of joy, doesn't it? Amen. So we see here <laughs> that joy can be a feeling. We see that. We, we see that joy can be a feeling, and it's a legitimate feeling based on the joy that is already in God's people. Okay? So joy doesn't come to us. It's reignited and applied. But now, we see here that joy can be a feeling, but it also is an action. <laughs> now, now, this is a whole nother deal right here. Now, this is what James is talking about specifically here. James is talking about counting it all joy when there is nothing that ignites joy in you circumstantially. Where you have to volitionally go in your soul in the fruit of the spirit and turn the Rolodex and grab joy among peace, patience, kindness, love, and long-suffering. Say, joy, come here. Come here. I'm, I'm, you got to come out right now. And now I am going to choose to have joy. I don't feel it right now. I'm not feeling God. I'm not feeling my circumstances. But I am going to demand that my feelings come under subjection to my understanding of God. I'm explain that in a minute because y'all need to learn that here at Epiphany. We need to learn this. We need to learn this because we dog certain sects of Christianity, but we need to learn something from them about this one. It says there is a joy that Scripture commands. That joy is an action that can be engaged in regardless of how a person feels. Proverbs 5.18 tells the reader to rejoice in the, in the wife of his youth without reference to what she may look like. That's, that's, what, that's what he said. He said, listen, rejoice of your wife. He told all men, if your wife got a love handle now, rejoice in her. That's, that's what the text says. I didn't say. The apostle Paul commanded continuous rejoicing. He said, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be made known among all people. I was at a funeral yesterday. And, you know, it was a very traditional atmosphere. 
it was stained glass windows, preacher had on robe, you know what I'm saying? He had on one of them cool robes, too. You throw it back and go, whoosh, you know what I'm saying? He came over. I mean, and that Negro could preach. Oh, my God, he was hooping that thing up, man. And he was in the text and the singing and the, and the Pente- a Holy Ghost Fire Baptized Church was there. And that's the name of them. And they were shouting. But what was interesting, what was interesting to me, what, this is what was interesting to me. I was enjoying myself. And they were driving me because this was a funeral. And they were driving Christians to look beyond the current. And they weren't talking about stuff either. They weren't talking about money. They weren't talking about prosperity. They were just talking about Jesus and spending eternity with him. And they said, in light of this death, we're going to celebrate. And the moderator said, and she quoted Isaiah 61, 3, and said, we ought to put on the garment of praise. Now, you got to understand, listen, you got to understand the context of Isaiah 61, 3. It's talking about the children of Israel being scattered and under, under harsh circumstances. And he talks about putting on the oil of gladness and changing it from oil. And this is, he, it's being commanded while the situation dictates. So it means to worship him, glorify him, lift up your hands, open your eyes, weep, run around the church, knock stuff over. Shabbat, it didn't say stand there and say, this is how I want to worship. It is courageous worship of God to tell your feelings, get behind me. See, you got you to gotta learn as a Christian to rejoice in the person of God in your circumstances and fight to make it subject to it. And, and, and not just at church, but in the car. Some of y'all need to have something on something. See, y'all ain't never been in the car before, and God, is, you, you in tears, and you're hurting, and you're struggling, and you're trying to work through something, and, and a song is on. And they're worshiping God, and you, you can't even open your mouth, but they're worshiping for you, and you end up singing with them and joining And I know I'm by myself right now, but what will happen every now and then is I'll have to pull the car over and sit on the side of the road and open my sunroof in the name of Jesus and lift my hands to heaven and say, God, though they slay me, yet will I trust you. Though I'm in pain, God, I give you glory. Though I'm hurting, I give you honor. I, I hate these circumstances, but I love you. I love your son. I love your cross. I love your work. I love your life. I love your omniscience. I love your omnipresence. I love your grace. I love your mercy, your wrath, your justice, your holiness. I love you. I don't see you right now, but I'm going to fight to look at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You better learn the lesson. You better learn the lesson. And you tell your feelings, catch up with where I'm going to take you. Now, that's when I believe in speaking stuff into existence. That's when I believe that. Feelings, I command you, in the mighty name of Jesus, to put on the garment. Now, what's interesting, you have to put it on. You don't have it on yet. So you got to get the jacket of praise and say, all right now. And sometimes during our worship time, we need to spend some time shabbatting. We need to spend some time just worshiping him and being still as a church before him and commanding ourselves 
to together, not creating emotionalism. Now, that's not what we're talking about, drumming or getting the music a certain way so that people can be emotional about the music and the tune, but not the God of heaven. I'm not talking about um, trying to force a move of God. I'm talking about trying to force yourself into where we need to be. And that's the center of joy as an action. That's the center of it, family. <laughs> and so he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials or trials of many kinds. This is crazy here. He, he's telling us this word here for various is a word that means multicolored. All different kinds of trials. It's like bubble gump thing. He said there's popcorn shrimp. There's fried shrimp. There's Cajun shrimp. There's coconut shrimp. There's broil shrimp. There's baked shrimp. All kinds of shrimp. And he talked that dude to death. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Trials are the same way. There are a bunch of different kinds of trials. But they all have the same anatomy and the same purpose. And so, it's account of our joy when you encounter various trials. The trial is a state of trial in which God brings his people through adversity and affliction in order to encourage and prove their faith and confidence in him. This word for trial means to be under examination by God. To be under an exam. The quizzes and the tests of life. Said the spectrum of meaning is so crazy with this, but it means the tests. And we're going to talk about testing in a second. And so next he says, after that, he says, when you meet, it's, this is crazy, when you meet various trials. It's like you say, hello, trial, how you doing? My name is, what's your name? Let's get it in. It's almost crazy to me, like, how a matter of fact this is. Then he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. All right. Let's dig in this. Next point. God uses suffering as the process by which authentic faith is shown. The, the thing that's being tested here is faith. Now, in order to understand what's being done to faith in the test is you got to understand what he means by test. Testing here is the act of testing or proving the genuineness of something. Approve or tried to test by which anything is proved and tried. And here, of course, is faith. It's referring to the genuineness or the realness of the faith that a person says they have. Now, what, what, what happens in this language, is this the word that's used of smelters or, 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 or metalsmiths? And metalsmiths, you know, <coughs> they would get an ore, a block of some type of metal, and they would put it under heat. They would put it under heat and they would watch it. And they would never overheat it. Because if they overheated it, they would destroy the metal. So like a metal like gold, they would heat it up and they would sit by and watch it. They wouldn't be dozing off and carrying on. They'd watch. They had this scooper thing. I don't know what it's called. And as dross and bubbles and impurities come to the top, as it comes and, it's, and the heat is right, it comes in and, and he just takes it off and pulls it out. Every time more comes in, he, he continues to keep it in the heat until everything is out. 
just continues to do that over and over and over again. And that metal would not be taken off the fire until all of those impurities were worked out of it. You can't call a fire truck for your trial, son. God is going to keep you in those trials until your faith is proven pure. That means faith in Christ, not just faith in general. Faith in Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that the smelter would know that there was purity in the metal when there was no more impurities coming up, and he would look into the metal, the metal, and if he saw his face, he knew it was ready to come off the fire. God is concerned with us looking like one person, and that's Jesus. And he is going to keep you in difficult times until he can see himself. That's what he's going to do. And one of the things about it is he doesn't turn the heat up. He doesn't overheat us with trials. He could. But he doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to build us. Now, let's look at this idea of faith. This is so practical. What we're about to go into, I mean, just so practical. I mean, practical. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, faith, let's look at this for a while. Because this is one of the themes of James. And he talks about faith in different areas of life throughout the book. Now, we know that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. In other words, trusting in God for something that doesn't, you're not experiencing or getting to enjoy at this particular time in your life. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. The testing here is centered on the authenticity of the faith of, the per, of that, uh, uh, that a person who claims to be a Christian has. If a person claiming to have faith sees a trial and goes through a trial and is abandoning Jesus or consistently going from circumstance to circumstance being an unbiblical nomad. So this faith is not true faith. True faith is not flighty. See, this is what I like about this. And see, you know, I used to be in them ghost shows. I don't, I, you know, they scare me now. I don't want, want them in there now. Now, let me just scare me because I believe, I got that charismatic part, so I believe that you can open doors and stuff and demonic stuff come in. So I don't even have it on the TV. I'll be doing like this, you know, sprinkling something. I can't be bothered. <laughs> but I used to watch them joints, and one of the funniest things used to be is they would give stories about someone's house being haunted. And the people get so bad, you know, stuff flying around, and they see somebody looking in the bedroom, a figure. <laughs> You know, and they're staying in the house. I mean, come on, man. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But um, anyway, and so some people will move, and the things will be all right for a little while, and then stuff starts happening again. They had them a stalking ghost, right? And the ghost just keeps bothering them and won't leave them alone, follow them everywhere they go. That's what the Holy Ghost do to Christians in trial. You, you think you're running from the circumstance by geographically changing locations. He's, he's just skipping behind you like. <laughs> and he's following you. Holy, the Holy Spirit is a stalker of Christians. And he, because he's determined for the name of Jesus to be formed in us. And so you can run, you can hide, 
You can, you, you can do what you want to do, but he's going to chase your behind. Listen, the storm clouds of God, you can't pray him away. You can't fight. He Listen, he's determined to stalk you because he loves Jesus a lot. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus so much that he will fight for you to be in his image. He loves Jesus. Jesus said he won't come do anything but to come glorify my name. That's all he comes to do. He, not, he, don't, even, he don't even care if you m- don't mention him in the worship gathering. He don't even want you to pray to him. He said, just pay attention to Jesus. I, I'm, I know I'm good. Crazy, right? But he'll stalk us because he wants us to have authentic faith. Now, this is interesting how practical this is because James used this throughout the book in serious facets. James um, uses faith, and this is basically he says throughout the book what God is sending these particular Christians through suffering for in order to get their faith to invade different areas of their life where they're actually practicing the fact that they're Christians, not talking smack that they are. So genuine faith is one of controlling things in James. Genuine faith yields the following, hearing and doing the word of God. In James 1, 18 and 21 through 27, chapter 2, verse 1 through 26, Chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 11. He says, if you're a person of faith, you will hear the word and you'll do it. He said, if you're a person of faith, next, he says, you'll control your mouth. James 1, 19 through 21. Through, chapter 3, 1 through 12. 4, 11 through tw- uh, 12. And then verse 13 through 17. Chapter 5, verse 9. And then verse 12. If you have genuine faith, he says, you, will, uh, you won't desire wealth above everything else. Wealth and uh, the desire for it. In other words, rig your life around it. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Verses 13 through 17. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He said, if you have authentic faith, you will have love, mercy, and you will be humble. Chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 2, verse 8, and verse 13, and verse 14 and 17, chapter 3, verse 13 through 16. I'm feeling like Stephen the Levite right now, but time to rewind. He said, if you're a Christian, you'll get wisdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. He said, if you're a Christian, you'll pray in faith. (laughs) In other words, faith without works is dead, he says later. What does he mean by that? When you go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, it says that every, God will work in us through trials every work of faith with power. That means faith-based works, not works-based faith, because we work out our salvation, not for it. Philippians 2.11. So trials reveal the depth level of these in the life of the Christian. So God is evaluating our depth. See, we can talk deep, but he wants us to be deep. See, God, God is not concerned about the fog of your mouth. See, our mouth can be fog. And we can talk above our spiritual maturity. That doesn't mean you don't learn theology. That doesn't mean you don't memorize scripture. That doesn't mean you don't approach Christianity in some respect intellectually. So we're not talking about anti-intellectualism. However, we're talking about having an intellectual-only Christianity where you give yourself credit for being somewhere because you know it. So suffering says, God says, oh, you, oh, you think you know? No, sorry, sorry, don't you? 
Oh, we're going we to let the Holy Spirit light him up. <laughs> and so God will put you in stuff where he will test your faith. But, but God doesn't do stuff without purpose. See, we purposeless. It says, so that the testing of your faith will produce something, steadfastness. It produces something. In other words, God is a very goal-oriented God who decrees stuff, and he will do it, and he will sovereignly bring it to pass. So steadfastness, now listen to this definition. This is crazy. This is, so after faith is tested and purified, it strengthens the a Christian's ability to do the below. What we're going to do right here is to persevere, remain under, or bearing up under, having patience, endurance as to things or circumstances, to the quality of character, which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb to trial. Consistency in the midst of adversity. Perseverance in the face of aggressive misfortune. The capacity to hold up and bear up in the face of difficulty. Fortitude. I like fortitude because when I play video games, you know, your thing go down and the fortitude go down, you lose the game. Fortitude. The ability to stand up under things. That's when you know what you're made of. That's when you know what you're made of. And trials don't make you become something bad. Trials only show what you already are. It just exposes it. But God doesn't condemn because through the cross, he's bringing those things up so that you can present it to Jesus. But that's why you need to learn to repent. Don't, when, when God shows you through trials your raggedy self, if you don't deal with the raggedity of what you are, Your heart becomes hard. It hardens just a little bit. Then you, then God sh takes you. Then he, that's when he turns up the fire. He, he turns up the fire only when you harden and don't hearken your heart towards the change that he's trying to bring in you. And then, then, then believers tell you the Holy Spirit is busting your heart open, the scriptures, but you still deny him, harden. He wants to produce consistency in us. Expectation. What's powerful about this is Jesus is the ultimate at steadfastness. Jesus is the ultimate at this. He's so gifted. Je Jesus, Jesus, you know, I, I, I'm blown away by him. He's 100% God, 100% man. 30 years old with all the power of everything. Just God. Now, Jesus is in the high priest's house. He's God in flesh. And Jesus answered the high priest's questions. The high priest's servant slapped him. Now, I'm just telling y'all right now. I'm, I'm just telling y'all. I, mean, I got to walk right now. Like, like, that's some Bugs Bunny taking off your gloves, slapping in the face type stuff. God got slapped by his creation. 
and he stood there. He stood there and did nothing. He could have just winked his eye at him and everybody just turned to ashes. <laughs> and then winked the other eye and they come back up again. Say, do it again here. <laughs> well, he could have did that. He could have did that. He could have beheaded a dude like with his fingernail. Just, and, I mean, he could have did all type stuff. I mean, I'd have been creative with all that power. I'd have creatively wore them out, held one to the wall, and with my mind, and just watch him. Oh God, I'd have did something to him. I'd have did some heroes type stuff, some Siler type stuff. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> some of y'all that just went right past you. But Jesus stood there and took the creation. He remembered when he was in his womb. He remembered his mama. He, I mean, he remember. he know how many hairs is on his head. He knows how many times he's eaten, how many pounds of food he's eaten all his life. How, what's the weight of the tears that he's cried all of his life? How many bottles it can fit in? Um, he knows how many times he's scratched, how many itches he had, how many times he's cut his skin. He knows everything about him, yet he allows himself to be mistreated, and he stands it. Then he allows himself to be stripped and embarrassed. And, and allowed himself to be beaten with what he created. Tearing his skin from his body. And he took it. Because he knew that what he was going through had purpose. He went to the cross and he's, listen, he's on the cross talking to dudes about heaven. Like, think about that. He's on the cross talking about this dude just just talking about, you're dumb, you can get us down. He's wailing at Jesus. Jesus on the cross, barely breathing and bleeding to death. Then the other dude tells the other dude to shut up. Then tell Jesus, remember me. And Jesus being, I don't understand this. Like, think about this. He's on the cross suffocating for six hours in the hot sun. And he got beaten and they weren't beaten. They were just crucified. He was beaten with 39. Now, I don't know if you know, like, I got beat with switches. Now, I don't know y'all know nothing about that green switch, though, though, though. Miss <laughs> May, Mama May know about that thing. The green switch, the smell freshly born. And when that switch hits, you go, whew. And, you, and, you, and you're about, I mean, it just feels like somebody's tearing. And you're like, oh, I mean, and, and now I'm thinking about Jesus getting beat with a cannonine whip in relation to a switch. And he endured. How much more if he endured like that? How much more by his power should we endure the, this is funny. The Bible even talks bad about our stuff. Paul like, this is light momentary afflictions. This is some more lightweight stuff. Shut it down, fam. But he got stoned and called that light. Stoned. Let us have his full effect on us. Full effect 
Next, next point, God uses suffering to produce spiritual maturity. Full effect means to complete, to be perfect, undivided, entirely complete. It means to be a doggone adult. It means to be a spiritual adult. Literally, it means in the Greek, grow the heck up. I'm the lexographer right now. That's crazy. It means that God is using trials to grow us up. Wow. It means to finish. It's the same word that's used by Jesus on the cross in a, another form, the, the Greek word telos, which means Jesus said it's, fin it's finished or complete. It's the same word being used here. He said completing what, what our assignment is for growth in that trial. Now, all of our spiritual growth doesn't happen in one trial. That's just one. So God has to send multiple trials over your lifetime to grow us in different areas of deficiency like Jesus. Then he said that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This complete word here is interesting when it's compared to the other one because it's, it's, it's the same word but used kind of differently. It means of something complete in all its parts to be whole. Where we get our word from holos. I mean, holos is the word we get whole from. Completed. That which retains all that was initially allotted to us and wanting for nothing but wholeness. So God wants us not deficient in any area of our life. Last point, I'm out of the way. God uses suffering to give, the, uh, to give us depth in our practices. He said, if any man lacks wisdom, ask of God. Stop there. This word for wisdom is the Greek word sophia. Sophia, wisdom. Now, God is, I mean, James is telling us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to not ask why this is happening. He said, don't ask that question. He said, you already know why, because you're a Christian. That was one of the first things that Christians were taught when they first became Christians. One of the fundamental Bible doctrines, which we need to add to the covenant community manual, was suffering. He said, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what they told new Christians. Like, what? I'd be like, what, what? I went, like, what are you talking about? I, I thought I was, nah. But he says, Sophia here, ask for wisdom. He says, don't make up reasons why you're in a trial. Don't false prophesy over yourself. Prophesy, don't do that. He said, ask God, what are you doing? The ability, and, and this is what he, what he means when he asks wisdom. It's not just the information of what he's doing, but it's the transformation of what he's doing. You'll catch it. The ability to use knowledge for correct behavior and insight. So, in verse 21, he'll say, receive the engrafted word of God, which is able to save your soul. Now, God, when we get information in us, what he has to do to work it in us so that we practice it is allow us to go through trials and give us wisdom on how to use the information that we know. So the more you know, the more trials you're going to have. Don't read your Bible now. Let me like, see? 
I'm glad he told me that. Devotions is shut down for the week. So, <laughs> the word is also used of as supreme intelligence of God and Christ's wisdom. It's also used of Christ's embodiment of, as God's wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1.24. It's also used as enlightenment given through divine revelation. It's also used as God's plan of salvation as revealed in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2.7. Now listen to this definition as this lexicon lays it out. Skill in affairs of life. Practical wisdom. Wise management as shown in forming the best plans and selecting the best means, including the idea of sound judgment and good sense. That's spiritual. How many of you know, I'm, we're going to learn something today. Practicing theology is theology. Talking theology is only the first ream. But until that, that gets from here to here, you haven't really truly been experiencing or transformed by the theology that you say you believe. So you got to admit that you're unclear. You got to admit that. If you're unclear, just say, God, I'm, I'm unclear. I know you're good and I know you're sovereign even now. However, God, I need Sophia right now. Now, dudes, don't be looking for a wife. That's the Greek word for wisdom. God, I need Sophia. I need Sophia. I need wisdom. God, I need you. Um, I'm, in, I'm in a lot of pain right now. And I'm, I'm confused. I am struggling with your character at times, but I do know you're good. I don't feel well. You, you won't stop anything. So, obviously, you're trying to do something in me. You're not using this to change somebody else. God, you're using this for me. God, I don't want to point fingers because I lack so much humility. I'm so prideful. And I want to I blame my circumstances on you and others. However, because you're sovereign and you have a providence, that means nothing is wasted in my life. Because nothing in my life is wasted, you use everything to glorify you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, living God, in the name of Jesus, give me wisdom. Give me the ability right now to apply what I know. And if I don't know in order to have wisdom, help me to go to the scriptures that I need to know them so that I can practice them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You need to learn how to do that in the midst of your circumstances. You need to look that just real practical, yet deeply theological. I used to hate getting older. I remember when I turned 30, I had a funeral for my 20s. I was like, dang. I'm like, oh man, 30 and carrying on. Now I'm, now I'm knocking on another door, and I've learned to like getting older. I've learned to not have a funeral. All the 30-year-olds say amen. All right. And so um, <laughs> I just, I'm just going to let y'all get away with it. Go ahead. 
But what I am still learning to do, I'm learning to enjoy every year that God gives me. Because to miss being a certain age is to be thankless for the years that God gives me. And so what I've learned to do is every year I, I like, I remember I was talking to Pastor Larry. I don't even know if he remembered it. I said, Pastor Larry, this year is going to be different. He just said. <laughs> 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 he just said, young boy, find out in a minute. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and you know, I've, I've learned to not base the year off of blessings that I receive. I'm learning to say, God, whatever you called me to encounter, the year isn't good based on what I get from you, but what you do in me. And so as I grow older, my wife and I, we can sniff out a trial. We can sniff. We're like, you smell that? You smell that? You know how before it's rained, it hadn't really rained yet, but you can smell the moisture? Or you can smell when something's burning and you don't see fire, but you know it's somewhere around the corner, or there's gas leaking somewhere? That's what me and my wife, we got a prophetic anointing for trials. <laughs> and we'll feel it. And I'll say, she'll, she'll, we'll say, you know it's about to get rugged, right? It's about to get rugged. We've learned instead of trying to fill ourselves with denial, as we've gained wisdom from God through going through a lot of trials, what we're beginning to do is understand Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk. You're only going through what you're going through. <laughs> God doesn't want you to pitch a tent in the valley. Say, ah. <laughs> don't want you to do that. God wants you to plow through the valley. And me and my wife, I'm going to hold her hand and grab my boys. And whoever want to come with us, we're going to go. And we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not because we got each other, but because the Lord our God is with us. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so we're not facing a valley by ourselves. We're walking through the valley clenched together saying, God, we see the mountain. I will look to the hills from whence cometh my help. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. They're not looking to the hills to help them. They're looking to the God that takes them to the hills. <laughs> but then there's the other side of this, which I'll close on. This, this is the difficult part. It's when a person does not walk in faith in a trial. When they refuse to grow, when they refuse to ask God for wisdom, there's something that happens to you. You become something that is bad for any Christian to become. And that's the latter part of these verses. It says, verse 6, it says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Just all over the place. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When you lack wisdom or don't, not, it's not lacking wisdom here that's the issue. It's not pursuing God for it in faith. Okay? Double-mindedness means to strictly have two minds. We used to call this two-faced people. Fickle. Divided loyalties. This person, they wish to maintain religious confession and desires, 
the presence of God in their life. On the other hand, he or she loves the ways of the world and prefers to live according to the mores and ethics of it. They're very undecided and hypocritical, double-headed people who stagger helplessly here and there, and they're not thinking at all. It's spiritual bipolarism. Unstable in all their ways means often changing their mind. They're very unstable. They're restless. They're unsteady. They're fickle. They're subject to, they're not subject to control. They're unruly. They're unsettled. They're unsteady. They're exposed to unrest and unable to be tamed. That's not what we want to be. We take from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the grace, who gives us the grace to be able to come to him and repent and turn towards his cross. Turn towards him, and the cross is the wisdom of God. However, even with the cross, God always gives resurrections, Paul said in Philippians 3. But many people want resurrections, but they don't want sufferings. But God's process is suffer resurrection, suffer resurrection, suffer resurrection. All of, uh, throughout your life, it's filled with crosses, empty graves, crosses, empty graves, crosses, empty graves. And God always promises to resurrect his people. The resurrection isn't necessarily better circumstances, it's a new you. <laughs> that's, that's the center of this thing. That's what it means to be cross-centered, gospel-centered, is working on us. Yeah. And so let's bombard God. If you're going through right now, ask for wisdom. Ask. This is a promise. This is a promise that he'll give it. But when he gives it, don't ignore it. Don't act like, oh, you weren't talking to me. I don't know who you think you're talking Nah, you need to hear the wisdom of God in every area of life. And he is determined for us to look like Jesus. Maybe you're here today <laughs> and you don't know Jesus as Savior. You're going through heaven.